Welcome back to Inspiring Neighbors podcast, where we highlight seemingly ordinary people with extraordinary stories. In today's episode, we had the honor of hosting Kim Mayville. Trevor, I finally got to meet your cousin. Yeah, my cousin Kim. I, oh man, it was amazing. I was so happy with how it went and how open she was. Um, being mm-hmm. in the medical profession, I wasn't sure how open she would be, mm-hmm. uh, how open she can be, but she was amazing. I'm so grateful for her coming on and telling her story. Um, so thank you, Kim. Yeah, no, I love to hear about her life. And it's, it's, I would say like a kind of a breath of fresh air to see both all she's accomplished, um, I guess being a start, you know, starting out as a nurse, let's say, and in her career and then entering med school later on in life and and what that looked like right next to being able to talk about self-doubt and how you overcome that and and that will definitely stick with me she hit me in the feels as the kids say (laughs) she yeah it was amazing thank you kim yes thank you kim and for everyone else let us know what you think and please enjoy kim mayville let's talk to our neighbors Cause everyone can inspire the inspiring neighbors podcast like Jafar. I was trying to think of my earliest memory of Kim. Okay. And it's probably not my earliest memory, but it's my it's one of my favorite. There's I think two conversations happened at the same time. I was sitting on the floor in your living room with you and Melissa. Melissa is Kim's sister, and you were explaining Gizmo was there. Gizmo was their dog. And Gizmo was just laying there, enjoying the company. And I think it was Kim said, do you know dogs never sleep? And I was like, what do you mean dogs never sleep? Yeah, they never sleep. Like, all night, they just stay awake the whole night. I was like, this can't be true. But it must be because Kim's telling me. If Kim is saying. (laughs) So then I was like, what? They must sleep. Like, they, they can't just run their whole lives without sleeping and and kim's response was well have you ever stayed awake and watched a dog all night oh and i was like that's a good <laughs> point night. no i haven't <laughs> and then it was on me like the burden of proof was now put on me to prove that dogs do sleep and i wasn't about to stay awake all night and watch gizmo and you probably knew that kim so then that was it and then for many years, I just believed that dogs never sleep. I think I probably told other people at school, dogs yeah. never sleep. My cousin Kim said. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm a horrible, horrible cousin. I'm no, so no, sorry. No, no, you're very wise. And from that day on, I knew if I needed advice, I would go to Kim. <laughs> oh, Trevor, that's a terrible story. I'm so sorry. Oh, please. Now I sound like I was a giant bully. I wonder how many of my friends still believe that dogs don't sleep. Oh no! Sure. Cousin Kim told us. <laughs> I so can't man. believe I told you dogs don't sleep. That's actually quite funny. The yeah. hilarious part is like having dogs. You know that they sleep like eighty percent of the day. All the time. <laughs> Never mind the night. Certainly, you was... watched a dog sleep. <laughs> if you see a dog, he's probably sleeping. <laughs> I don't know, but they've always got one eye, one eye half open, so I don't blame you for saying that. Trevor, have you heard about dolphins? Dolphins, just in general? 
Yeah, you've heard about dolphins and their sleeping patterns? No, I haven't. Oh, they also don't sleep. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I can't tell if this is a fact or not, but I you now you have like 20 up, years of medical education, so I'm guessing you're probably right. They, they sleep with half of their brain at a time only. Oh my god, oh. if I could so do that. So that they can stay things... awake and get away from predators. Oh, that makes sense, because you never see like a picture of them laying in the... Just bottom of the ocean with a pillow <laughs> yeah just another little fun fact for you okay, you can but... choose to believe it or not you tell yeah. your friends or don't True. we need <laughs> we need to have a fact you do with check that information section. now Go scuba diving I, I, I would i would at, at least wikipedia that one before sharing trevor i don't <laughs> reminds you when i was younger my dad said to us that uh Horses don't, horses sleep standing up because they, okay. if they lie down, then like they're, they, they'll never be able to get up again. So like you might as well shoot a horse if it's lying down. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not going to be able that's to get up. So that's why they sleep standing up. And he just said it as a fact, like it was my mom and my sisters were like, oh, wow, yeah. like that is a fact to learn. And then years later, and I, I'm pretty sure he was messing with us. But eventually he believed it himself. So years later, <laughs> we're watching a movie and the horse was lying down and we're like, oh. And then he oh. gets up and the whole family was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> just a yeah. And your Amazing. dad gets up. He's like, it's just a movie. It's fake. It's not and real. They, they shot that horse. never anything ever again. <laughs> if you ever see a horse so sleeping, just shoot so it. So easy to mess with kids. Yeah, no kidding. Well, if it makes you feel better, I think in that same conversation, Melissa had gotten new glasses. And for okay. some reason, I was, I don't know how old I was. I want to say six. I'm going to pick a little number because it makes me feel better for saying this comment. You were 13. <laughs> 17. <laughs> I, uh, I told her she looked like Elton John and you both, you kind of went, okay. <laughs> That's not bad. Luckily, Melissa's amazing also. And she's like, I love Elton John. Yeah. And as soon as I, I said it, I was it. like, oh, that's a dumb comment. <laughs> I'm just trying to burn bridges as much as I can. Yeah. Oh but God, I have Trevor, to say I how much, so much I respect Elton John. So it was really, truly a compliment. <laughs> I don't know how it came off. But... Melissa would have taken it as a like huge compliment, I'm sure. She did. I remember. I'm going to ask her now, though. <laughs> yeah, see if she remembers that. I have all these crazy memories, but that was fun. Great podcast. That was awesome. <laughs> We're done. Go check out Dolphin Sleeping. Yeah, I'm going to go get my scuba diving fact, gear. Fact check Kim, go. please. <laughs> so, Kim, you are, you've always been amazing. Um, <laughs> Ever since I can remember, as I've described, um, you have helped us through all three sons' births because I remember in all three of them, we we couldn't get a doctor to sit with us for an hour and just answer questions and be nice to mm -hmm. us for that long. Um, so That's I said, a challenge, well, for sure. <laughs> it's tough. So uh, we called Kim every time, and every time it was like we had a 99% anxiety level going into this. <laughs> And then it was down to probably a 13% level when we left <laughs> because Kim is just so amazing and patient and loving and so smart. I think if I needed to know how to like land a rocket by itself, I would ask Kim 
And then I would ask Elon Musk. You probably think... should not ask him about that. <laughs> You're going to get an answer similar to dogs never sleep. I don't know. I think you've come a long way since the dogs never sleep. Trevor, Trevor said, uh, Kim knows literally everything. So literally. I think, I think it, this fits in there. Yeah. As oh my you... gosh. You guys flatter me way too much. You're making me feel very, very special. You are very special. And then, yeah, I've called you about other things eczema and my baby I've just and that was like a random hail mary i need somebody <laughs> who knows this specific prescription drug so then i texted kim oh yeah i do know that let me call you and then she gave me a half hour lecture on the uses and the benefits and the comparisons to other ones but yeah so that's a little bit about my love for kim um i wanted to start with you were um you're in nursing. You're a nurse, correct? Yep. yep. And you were quite good at it, from what I've heard. I don't know a lot, but I'm assuming I mean, you're amazing at opinion, it. Yeah. I think I was uh, competent. <laughs> so first question is a very serious one. Is working in a hospital exactly like Grey's Anatomy? Um, so I'm currently just watching a little Grey's Anatomy and okay. it is nothing like Grey's Anatomy. Oh no, my heart just sang. <laughs> I'm so sorry to say it is, um, okay. very, very different than Grey's Anatomy. As oh, it turns man. out, the doctors don't do absolutely everything. That one I did know. I think the call is, rooms are a is... lot less entertaining as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I'll stop watching it then because I've, I've my whole your, your medical education. I mean, that's exactly that. how it is in the hospital. We just have fun and hang out in the call room all day. Yeah, and like okay. everyone who comes in for something really simple is probably going to die, and everyone who comes in for something very complex is going to do well. Miraculous. <laughs> that's what I learned girl. from Grey's Anatomy. Like, oh, I hope you don't come to get your gallbladder out. That's going to go very poorly. Yeah. Unless you give yourself a good pep talk before you do it, <laughs> and then it'll go amazing. That's right. I was thinking about that the other day. How strange would it be for Ellen Pompeo, the Gray from Grey's Anatomy, to be in a hospital? Like that must feel strange. You're like, this is like where I am every day, but <laughs> I think she wants to give different. advice to them. <laughs> She's like, I, I, uh, I've dealt with this before. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, um, do you know how many babies you've delivered? Oh, my gosh. I, you know what? This makes me sound like a terrible person because every birth is so special <laughs> for everyone involved that I'd like to say that I remember every single delivery <laughs> I've ever been a part of. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, it's I, A lot of babies have been delivered, for sure. And you get to the thousands, you start... <laughs> and you tell us about the first baby you delivered i can so nurses don't typically do deliveries unless the doctor doesn't make it for delivery and i was working one night and a patient was cut getting close to delivering and i said okay we need to page the doctor so we paged the doctor she wasn't available <laughs> so i said okay we'll just, we'll just stop pushing. We'll just, we'll just hang tight until this doctor is, is available. I'm going to tell you this doctor, I have so much love and respect for. And after working with her years, I think she's the most phenomenal doctor ever. But as a new nurse, she scared the pants off of me. <laughs> and so that's it. the doctor that was on call. And I, 
okay, so now we're no longer able to not push. This baby is coming. I call the doctor again. You have to come now. I need you. She's like, okay, I'm on my way up. I'm, I'm coming from the emergency room. Okay, great. So I call out and I say, I need a resident to stand by. Like I need someone that can deliver this baby. It's coming. Yeah. And nobody comes and nobody comes. So finally I'm like, okay, I'll put on gloves. <laughs> okay, I can do it. And I was so terrified. And oh my gosh. just as the baby was delivering, this doctor that I was absolutely terrified of walked in the room and was like, what is going on? And I was like, I'm, oh so my sorry, God. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And we delivered the baby and it was totally fine. And she was so lovely and gracious afterwards. She's like, you did a great job. That was awesome. Good work. Yeah, I couldn't have done it better myself. It was, it was amazing. But I remember oh being God. just terrified. It's like another level of nerves. <laughs> yeah. But you really my don't other... have an option, right? Your option is to just hold yeah, your hand there this and is stop happening. it. From... So yeah. <laughs> you got you to gotta do it. Oh my my gosh. other favorite delivery, and I hope I'm not breaking confidentiality. This is from a, a very long time ago, was okay. a patient that was on her way to the hospital. She didn't quite make it to the room. And so we were in a wheelchair, running her down the hallway, trying to get her into a room for this delivery. As she's screaming at her husband, I told you we needed to leave earlier. I told you we needed to go. Like, ooh, this is, okay. So I deliver the baby in the hallway. Wow. And another nurse had ran and grabbed some supplies for us. She had me a pair of scissors to cut the umbilical cord. So I handed the scissors to dad. I was like, do you want to cut the cord? And I have been made fun of relentlessly for that, that we were in the hallway and I was still trying to get the dad involved. Good for you. <laughs> that gives a good idea of how relaxed you probably were at that point. Just another I don't baby. know about that, but uh, do you want to cut the cord? Yeah. If we're in a hallway. <laughs> That's amazing. Maybe let's just get her into a room. <laughs> Did he get a chance to say yes? We cut the cord. Absolutely. Amazing. Good we're for We're doing him. it. We're in the hallway anyway. Aww. Yeah. What's the difference? <laughs> This is now part of your birth story. Oh, that's amazing. That's so cute. <laughs> you always hear stories about babies being like delivered in elevators or we actually when we had Noah the same night our C Laura had a C section for Noah and the um C section got bumped because there was an emergency. And then later we heard that the emergency was a lady came in and she had twins and she went into labor in the park, like in the truck on the way to mm -hmm. the hospital. One of them was delivered in the truck in the parkade. <laughs> and the next one was delivered on the way up. Wow. And we we're like, oh, my God. <laughs> Just, and everybody seems so calm all the time. I don't know how you stay calm. Well, I guess we deliver a lot of babies. And part of our job is to make parents feel comfortable and like everything's smooth sailing under control mm -hmm. don't worry we got this mm -hmm. so we have really great poker faces yeah. we are not always as calm as we appear but we try really hard to at least present that it's such a do they teach that in school or is it just something you're good at or not i think you, you just learn, learn on it job? on the job yeah like there's yeah. a storm going on in your head but outside it's normal. yeah everything's great we're just gonna Wheel you on down to the operating room and um, get this little one out a little faster than we had initially planned. Yeah. Aww. Oh, my gosh. I believe that. <laughs> Thank you, Kim. I feel better. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a thing, right? Like, it's like you, that, that um, 
voice of experience of like this is nothing we haven't seen before is so comforting when when you're when you when you're in that situation where it's nothing you've seen before <laughs> it's uh, it's maybe like the worst or scariest thing that's ever happened to you but the idea that like to somebody else yeah who is taking okay, care of you there. it's just another tuesday then yeah. you're like okay yeah. i was listening to your podcast the physiotherapist that does the children's sylvana sylvana um yeah and you were talking about walking by like a pedestrian that oh, yeah. was doing unwell. And she came up and was like, hi, I'm Savannah. I'm a physiotherapist. I'm going to yeah. help you. What's going yeah. on? Like, what can we do for you? Yeah. And so calm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's not a normal skill that people have when coming on an emergency situation. It's something it's that we're so used to doing. Yeah. And it was, was a lovely story. It was eye-opening because you always imagine yourself like the calm person, voice of reason. <laughs> like if something happened and I saw a crash, I could go over there and handle it. Now I know like, <laughs> I could not do that. <laughs> and I will probably keep driving as I call 911. <laughs> I'll teach Just you the poker face, Trevor. Don't even okay. worry about it. <laughs> Please, yes. If we could have a lesson, that would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever slipped up and said like, oh, shit. <laughs> and then um, before you caught yourself? I did drop the F-bomb in a patient's room once. It was a patient who had very, very difficult IV access and had been poked uh, and poked and poked trying to get an IV. And we called the anesthesiologist to come in and do it. He had to poke a few times and got the IV in. And I turned around to grab the tape to tape it in place. And my foot got caught on the tubing and I pulled it right out. Fortunately, the patient laughed hysterically. The <laughs> anesthesiologist laughed hysterically, all about how ridiculously dumb this nurse was, who just ripped out the IV. It took us forever to get. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing! So even that was I'm, the right comforting thing to say. <laughs> For all the medical people out there, students, it's not it's like, the right answer. It's like, thank you. Not the right answer. Yeah. Thank um, you, I Bella. certainly was embarrassed and, and truly got mocked mercilessly for it. For the whole situation, it. for sure. It was great. Oh, that's amazing. Another humbling moment brought to you by Kim. I just want to sit here and tell stories all day now. <laughs> no, these are amazing. <laughs> What what brought you into nursing, Kim? Um, oh, this is going to get like real deep into my personality. I think I always wanted to do medicine. Even from like being a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. But I really, really struggled through school. And I was not a very bright kid and wasn't good at school at all. And so I don't want to say it was my default, but I certainly was like, I want to do medicine. I want to be in a medical field. I certainly don't feel like I have what it takes to try to get into med school, but I think I could be a really good nurse. And I think that I have the right personality for it. I think I can be comforting and supportive in Mm -hmm. terrible situations. And then, um, just talking about births with my first son, I had a kind of negative experience and part of it was on me. Part of it was on the um, physician that I was working with. And I had one nurse that just was so kind and so wonderful and really changed my perspective of how things were going. And I thought Mm. when people are at the worst point in their lives, when they are terrified and they are 
uncomfortable and they are miserable, Mm -hmm. I want to be the kind of person that can change that experience for the patient. And I think nursing is the exact position that does that for people. They are so kind Mm -hmm. and so comforting and can really make a huge difference on that patient's perception of what what's going on that is so true so that yeah. I went into nursing <laughs> wow that... I agree with that that I have never met a nurse that I didn't want to like hug and cry with by the end of <laughs> the experience and and I've had both experiences like overwhelmingly the the yeah. that one where you like every little bit of kindness is just exponentially impactful because you mm-hmm. you really need it in that moment. Uh, and I've had the rare occurrence of having someone just do the slightest unkindness or just not even like show care. And in that yeah. moment, it feels like the worst, like <laughs> the, fl- the just, floor is falling off from under you. So I think it makes your experience so much worse when you're scared and you don't feel like someone's got control of this and they're taking care of you and it's going to be okay. That's terrifying. And if there's any sort of negativity, and I mean, we're all human, so yeah, it yeah. happens. Certainly, I have not been my best at times with patients, but I think that does really impact their experience. Yeah, no, it's such a high stakes, you know, they say like, go to work and just put a put a smile on, doesn't matter what kind of day you're <laughs> having. But yeah, in that type of role, it I think, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure to keep that. Yeah, it is. And I hate to admit it, but not all patients are created equal. So not everybody is appreciative of the kindness and it gets harder and harder when you have a very unappreciative and I don't think it's their fault. I think it's that they're going through a terrible experience and it's, they're not at their finest, but it can be draining to try to take care of them for sure. Mm -hmm. I believe that it's like you you're constantly being put in a room with somebody who's just miserable. And it, uh, good luck. It's your turn to like try to cheer this person up and make them happy. Sometimes it can feel that way, for sure. It's an amazing amount of pressure. So you go through nursing. At one point, you make a decision that you want to go to med school. What um, led to that? So we actually have jumped over a couple different things that I did that probably led me to okay. med school. Let's back up then. Let's go so through let's it. back up a little. <laughs> so when I was in nursing, I really kind of, when I was doing my undergrad, I really kind of fell in love with research and I was like, okay, when I'm done nursing and I've worked for a few years, I probably want to get a little more into research. And so in my undergrad, I started working as a research assistant with one of the professors and kind of like really enjoyed that. And so one day she called me up and she said, Hey, Kim, I know you've been out and you've been practicing for a few years. There's a scholarship opportunity at the University of Alberta for people to come back and do their master's of nursing. And I think you should apply for that. And so I was like, yeah, okay. That was kind of on my radar anyway. If I can get some money to support me doing it, I'm in. So I called up one of my best friends from nursing school and I was like, this is what we're going to do because I can't do it alone. So you're in it with me. (laughs) So we applied we both got the scholarship and we started our master's in nursing. And so then I, I started my master's of nursing in a, like a research focus. And after doing that for <laughs> some time, I was like, I really miss the bedside clinical care. Mm-hmm. I don't think research is the right path for me. I still really love research, but it's not what I want to do full time. So I switched to the nurse practitioner program. 
and finished my nurse practitioner program and then worked as a nurse practitioner for a few years mm-hmm. and had this amazing job that I absolutely loved. But I think like in the back of my head, there was always this like, but what about medicine? What about medicine? Mm-hmm. What about medicine? I feel like this could be a really good thing. And then in my final practicum of my nurse practitioner program, I was lucky enough that some of the anesthesiologists in at the hospital I worked as a nurse were like, why don't you come do some hours with us and um, learn a little bit about what we do and see what we can create for a role for a nurse practitioner. And so I got to spend some time with them and was like completely oh, smitten. Wow. I just loved the anesthesiology role from what I had seen. And then I like finished my program and worked as a nurse practitioner in obstetrics, which I loved. And I have nothing but great things to say about it. But in the back of my mind, it was always kind of just like, what about medicine? What about medicine? Mm -hmm. So I woke up on um, July 2nd. I was just going to say, if you remember this date. I remember the date. And I was like, you know what? You are being a pansy. You're always going to regret that you never tried. And so I think I need to just try and see what happens. So I'll challenge and write the MCATs and I'll apply one time. And if I don't get in, that's like the universe saying that's not what's meant to be, but at least I will have tried. So I like went to my computer and looked at when the MCATs were being held. And I had about three weeks before I could write the MCATs, which if anybody knows, most people study (laughs) for a long time for the MCATs. But I was like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do my best. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna see what happens. We'll go from there. So I again phoned up a friend. <laughs> is this the same friend? Because this is a different friend, okay. but another friend from school. <laughs> a lot of really good like, friends. Um, I have a thought. Let's go for coffee. So I took her for coffee, and I was like, I think we should challenge the MCATs, and I think we should go for it. And she was like, okay. And so we studied every day while I was working a crazy amount. And we both went and challenged the MCATs. And I applied for med school and got in. So I was like, okay, that's that's what's meant to be. And I was a little bit devastated to leave the job that I was currently working at for something that was so unknown and felt Mm -hmm. so huge. Yeah. Uh, But here I am. Can we pause for a sec? You had two kids at this time. <laughs> you were doing this with two young children, correct? I, I don't did, know how old yes. they were at that point. I don't know the time. Um, yeah. So when I started my undergrad nursing, my oldest was about three and a half and my youngest was four months old when I started undergrad. Wow. Oh my and God. then when I went back for grad school, they were kind of like teen, preteen. Yeah. And then when I went to med school, they were like full-blown teenagers. And you were working also? Yep. Not in the med school. Were you working during med school? I did work during med school, yep. Oh, my God. (laughs) This hurts my head to think about. (laughs) I didn't work full-time, but I picked up shifts as much as I could. And then I don't know if you've heard heard about it. It was a little-known infectious process that went around called covid Oh, I hadn't heard about that, but oh, okay. can you tell us? So um, <laughs> it was this infectious problem that was seen across the world. Um, and as a result, med students got pulled out of the hospital for safety reasons. Mm. And so I went back and worked during that time and helped mm-hmm. out the old unit that I had worked on. And it was great. Holy cow. I don't it know was... how you did that. I don't, I, I, it, the math doesn't add up in my head. <laughs> I just had to like... 
a difficult Sunday morning with three, just trying to feed them. <laughs> um, I didn't do it alone. I had tons of family support. Mm. That's what I will say. Yeah. I worked hard. I think when you're, I think we're capable of so much more than we think we are. And, you know, when you're motivated and happy doing something that you love, you just find a way to make it happen. And I was able to just find a way to make it happen with lots of support. Amazing. That's good so for good. you for doing That's... that. It's such a And I still have tons of support. My parents are absolutely amazing and I certainly couldn't do this without them. And my kiddos are absolutely amazing and super supportive and understanding. So that's what, did, what makes it happen. What did they say when you said, yeah, I'm going to med school? <laughs> um, so we had had lots. So <laughs> I'm going to tell a story. My mom's going to be so mad. Um, when I, <laughs> um, I remember taking my mom to get our nails done. And while we were in the salon, we were sitting in the little massaging chairs. And I looked over at my mom and I said, Mom, I'm writing the MCATs. And she looked at me and she went, oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. You can delete that part out because I know I just got the MCATs. I probably won't. Okay? Sorry. Sorry, kids, um, mom. So sorry, mom. Please. I love you so much. Um, and then we laughed about it. And she was unbelievably supportive. But I think mm -hmm. she just knows the level of work that it takes. And yeah. those are decisions that you make. But it was quite hilarious. But I guess it's also like she it, it's it shows her faith in you, right? Because <laughs> I'm writing the MCAT doesn't translate to I'm going to med school. Many people might take it and say, Well, what are you why are you bothering, right? Like it's mm. it's a hard mm -hmm. thing to do, especially later in life, to take on that type of challenge when especially when you have a job that you it's like, really, you're successful. Yeah. Uh, it's really funny that you say that because I kept saying to my mom don't worry, mom, I haven't really studied. I'm not going to yeah. do well. I'm not going to get into med school, but I just have to try. And she was like, of course you're going to get in Kim. And I was oh. like, no, I really, I really don't think I will mom, but I just have to, I'm sure that this is not going to happen, but I'm just going to give it a shot. And she was like, oh, come on. Of course you're going to get it. <laughs> she had yeah. all the faith in me when I had none. Oh my Mom's God. Mom. She is, she is amazing. We should get yeah. her on too. Angela and I have said we're going to make a series called The Ones That Made Them. And it'll be the parents Aww. of all the people that we've interviewed. So you can I love get, that. get your mom yeah. to prepare. <laughs> yeah. Get her to listen to this after we interview her. Yeah. Uh, I wish I wouldn't have told that story. Yeah. If I was going to be like, Mom, you have to listen to this. Yeah, you have to because you're going to be on soon. There's going to be questions about this. No, she will yeah. love that story. Were your parents in the medical field? at all or uh nope both my parents are teachers they mm -hmm. both went back and did their masters when we were kids and mm -hmm. kind of moved up the education route I think um prior to Trevor's generation most of our family is teachers mm -hmm. now it seems to have switched to engineers that's the that's the hot profession um but everyone was teachers and educators and when I went into nursing I was like ooh, not a teacher I will never teach like I have I know everybody in this family loves it, but that's not for me. And probably um, two or three years after I started practicing as a nurse, I went back and taught nursing for the university. And my oh, parents that's were amazing. like, you said never, and here yeah, you are you teaching. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the, your blood. The, <laughs> the, the, yeah, the genes are strong. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Did you like so it? Like, oh, shoot. Um, 
there were aspects that I enjoyed, yeah. but, and I certainly continue to enjoy teaching, like when I'm working with med students or when I'm working with other sort of um, residents from different departments and in my nurse practitioner role, I did a bit of teaching. And so that like one-on-one -on -one teaching, I really enjoy, but standing up in a lecture theater of so many students, I did not enjoy. I, I do not particularly love public speaking. And mm -hmm. I just was like, Oh my gosh, this is not for me. This is not for me. <laughs> yeah. Good yeah, for you for doing it. I was it. just saying, give it up for teachers. I recently give like, it up for teachers. <laughs> I recently clued in that, like, oh, I hate, like, I hate putting together a presentation that is like an hour long. It 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 takes me two weeks of stress to put that together. Yes. And then yes. I was like, oh, they do a full day of presentation every day. <laughs> Eight hours every day. They stand in front of all these people. <laughs> just like it's too much for me, but good for them. Yeah. But that that's yeah. really cool that you got to. You got to at least checkbox. You did teach. And I did. And and my parents really instilled like how beneficial education is and how much they mm -hmm. loved it and they loved doing their masters and they learned so much. And so I would come home and listen to them talk about like the papers they were writing and what they were doing. And it was very inspiring to watch them do it all. I, I don't associate nursing with research. What did that look like being in a research role? Yeah, so there's tons and tons of research that goes into nursing. So my first research project was looking at women. This is like not a super uplifting topic. Looking at women that had experienced abuse and trauma, mostly sexual trauma, and how that impacted their perinatal experience. And then using that research to find ways to support women who have that kind of trauma during a delivery, which is a, um, a particularly um, vulnerable time. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my first research project. And then we did a little bit, and that was with one of the professors at the university. And then with a friend that I made do her master's with me, we had looked at like um, sort of mentorship roles in the nursing program for nursing students. And then when we started our master's together, we kind of looked around and we were like, you know, there's not a lot of mentorship here as much as we would like. So we started a peer-to-peer -peer mentorship program for the Faculty of Nursing Graduate Program oh, and wow. did some research with that. And then when I was working I did, my thesis was looking at um, a concept called SPIN, which is where results of research studies are misrepresented to try to make the research mm. seem more valuable. So things mm. like, we didn't see a statistically significant difference in X and Y, but there was a trend towards, or, you know, we didn't, we didn't quite get there, but we know that it would have been if we had done more. Mm. And I think there's a lot of really great value in in publishing negative research results that like we had this hypothesis, it didn't work out. It's probably not an avenue worth studying. We should probably look down different avenues mm -hmm. and not to say that every research that doesn't meet statistical significance means that it wouldn't, but I think there is value in, in just publishing what the data says without sort of spinning it to make it seem like it was a lot more valuable than, than maybe that, that research project was. Oh, that's mm -hmm. so interesting. Why do so you think that happens? Um, I think, that, well, there's a lot of reasons why that happened uh, or happens. One, everybody wants to feel like their research is producing results yeah. that are valuable and meaningful. 
I think there are some outside pressures to get your research projects published and journals are, and this is, this has changed. So this is many years ago that I did this research. And so I don't know what the current state is. And I would imagine that it's different, but previously your research was much more likely to be published if you had positive results. And so there was a pressure to sort of say like, look how valuable it was. There was positive results. It didn't quite meet it, but I know it would have, if we just carried it on or did a bigger sample size, um, then you were more likely to get published. So there's some pressure there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Does that affect the way you read news about medical conclusions? Absolutely. Like when you see a headline and it's like, oh, Absolutely. they proved that one glass yes, of wine a day. Sure. <laughs> one of the things that I love about having done my master's in research and having a, a good foundational knowledge on it is being able to evaluate research and see like, what would I like to adopt in my practice? And what am I going to sit on and wait and see kind of where the research takes us? I think that's a really huge part in every profession that works in the medical field and particularly for physicians when they're looking at this research and saying, so do I use that now? I don't like, do I change what I have been doing to adopt this process? Um, I feel like I have some skills that have helped me determine whether I would want to change my practice or not based on the, on the research. That's amazing. That puts so me at That makes me want to move to Saskatoon and have you be my family's <laughs> position. Right. <laughs> I think, I, I don't think that's a unique character to me. I think we get lots of training and research throughout all the different professions to mm-hmm. be able to do that. Yeah, I agree with that. I should say the doctor of ours that we have is very good and he seems to do that as well. Mm-hmm. But I've certainly experienced some that we had this drug pitched to us yesterday. You should try it. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me nervous. But <laughs> um, can I see that current evidence on that? <laughs> yeah. Can you give me a sec Instead to call of Kim? the pharmaceutical rep telling me it's good? Exactly. Yeah. That's that's a like so cool. So through Spin, did you end up publishing more or getting? I don't know if you were the you were pushing negative results to still be published. Is that fair? Um. So well. I think I was just looking at, so what I did was look at a quantitative research project and it was a systematic review. And I went through all of the research studies that were included in this review and looked at how many of them kind of spun their results Mm -hmm. and just kind of said, just trying to demonstrate how prevalent spin Mm -hmm. is. And then just trying to raise awareness about it to try to say, this is happening for these reasons, we should be encouraging more publication of negative results because there's huge value in that. And we should be really cognizant of the wording that we use when we're writing up our research projects. That's amazing. And I could imagine that would relieve pressure on the researchers to have to come up with, or I guess, how do you say it, extrapolate or balloon the results a little bit to get published. Yeah, there's pressure. for sure. Like there's, there's bias in research and we're always looking at ways of mitigating bias in research. And I think we have lots and lots of great strategies to do that. So just making sure we're following that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So having a conversation about that, how you can have like a study that let's say proves something or you never really prove, I guess, but suggests yeah. a certain correlation. And then like, I, I think the way that science is supposed to work is you have other studies that try to confirm whether that's true or not but is is there like less 
if you okay if you prove them wrong then maybe that's a splashy <laughs> headline that is a <laughs> is, it makes a big, big difference but if you just prove them right maybe there's less you know fanfare around that because you mm-hmm. is that uh I still think like even if you get negative results, then you have to look at that study and say, okay, so did we control all the variables? Did we have an appropriate sample size? Did we have um, like problems with our sample population? Did we like, you still need to look at it. Having negative results doesn't mean that that's an effective thing, but it's looking at what we did in the research and how we alter it if we're going to further study this to say whether it could be meaningful or not. And just looking at like, okay, why didn't that work or what happened there? And there's still probably future research that could be done, even if you publish those negative results. Now we know like in that population or in this setting, or, or maybe the difference isn't as big as we thought it was. Research is like, an ongoing thing that we are forever learning more about and we're forever mm-hmm. learning different ways to study topics. And it's just about that awareness of what happens in research. It's life-saving work. You think of being in the hospital, but this is also yeah. life-saving work. It's pretty It's cool. all important for sure. Um, and there are people that are very passionate about doing research and absolutely love it. And through my master's, I realized I probably am not one of those people. I don't mm-hmm. want a full-time job doing research, but I certainly have an appreciation for it. And it's certainly a large part of our role, but I just, am, I don't want to devote my life to being a primary investigator. That's what I learned. Wow. What about nursing? Was nursing what you expected it to be when you set out, you know, I want to kind of make a difference i want to be there for people when they need someone the most gosh i'm so old and that feels like it was so long ago that i'm trying to think of what (laughs) i thought nursing would be like before i got into it Mm -hmm. and i honestly i don't know that i could even speak to that because it was so long ago i think of course it was different than what i expected of course the program was so much more than what I thought it was going to be. Nursing is so much more than what I thought it was. The, Mm. the role is so vast. There's so much that nurses do. There's so many different areas that nurses practice. So I think, um, getting into the program, your eyes are really open to that. I think again, like Silvana was talking about getting into physiotherapy and not even understanding that child physiotherapy was a different role in and of its own. I think you go into nursing and you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much more to do than I thought. And you start like experiencing all these different areas of practice and it changes who you are and your perception of each profession. And I would say that's the same, like when I did my nurse practitioner, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much different than what I thought it was going to be. There's so many areas you can practice getting into med school. You know, I, I think I came into med school with a better idea of everything having worked in the hospital and worked in healthcare but still like every time I go into a program I learn so much more about it that I didn't know I was gonna ask that same question about med school because it held such a uh, a space in your mind for such a long time Mm -hmm. thinking about med school sounds like did it feel like it felt when you had imagined it I guess is my question I remember my mom saying when I found out I got into med school, I went over to their house and I told them, and my mom said, this feeling that you have right now, this feeling of euphoria and excitement, you hold on to that. Mm Because somewhere in the middle of your med school, 
you're going to lose that feeling and you're going to be overwhelmed and it's going to be so much work and you're going to be tired and you need to think back to this moment and how you feel right now. And this is why you chose to do this. And for some reason that just really resonated with me. And so when I was tired and exhausted and overwhelmed and, um, working so hard, I would go back to that moment and be like, but mom said, and moms always know. think back to that moment and how excited you were. So I think that was the one big takeaway. You know, it's a lot of work. It's hard, but I think, I think I had a pretty good idea of what I was getting into. I had worked with a lot of med students. I had worked with a lot of residents. Yeah. I, I feel like I went into med school the most sort of eyes wide open as opposed to maybe nursing or the nurse practitioner program. Yeah. What an amazing piece of advice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I wouldn't so have wise. thought of that. She's so wise. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought of that at the time. At the time, I was just excited. And I was like, oh, this new challenge. I love being challenged. It's going to be so great. I can't believe this happened. I've been thinking about this since I was a kid. I was too scared to try for years and years and years. And here I am. And they they accepted me. But I wouldn't have thought like, oh, yeah, but when it's really hard and you're in the thick of it, come back mm-hmm. to this moment. So mm-hmm. that was, it was, and the only reason I was able to use that is because my mom said, remember this. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. I'm going to use that. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Kim, Kim's mom. It's like, it could be used in every, everything. You get, everything. you kind of fall in love with things right away. And then almost guaranteed there comes a point where it's just work and it's like, yeah. it's really hard and you lose that love really quickly. The other thing I always think about is when you're reading people's stories and like watching documentaries or reading biographies or thinking about these incredible, incredible people, you often only get snippets of the story. You get when they got accepted or thought of this idea or started, and then you get when they were a huge success and they made it happen, but you don't really, people don't talk about the struggles of going through it. They don't talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, the... 17 book rejections they got before they were finally published and how that Mm -hmm. felt and how they carried on. I think you get like a little like brief (laughs) overview of, yeah, I had to work. It was hard. We went through rejection, but then we got there, but I don't think you really see how long that period can be of working Mm -hmm. so hard and feeling that sort of rejection or being overwhelmed you just get these snippets of the stories and it makes it feel like if you're not instantly winning if you're not instantly successful then it probably isn't going to happen for you and I don't think that's how it happens for most people I don't think that's the typical story and so it's it's important to remember that everybody goes through those struggles everybody works really hard everybody has that hard time and they come out of it on the other side yeah that's it's such a good lesson. I've heard people talk about like their overnight success mm. and their comment is, yeah, this the like the the flip from not successful to successful may have been overnight, mm. but there was 20 years before that overnight occurrence. That's right. That I was right? Like I, I worked off. my butt off for a really long time and I was thinking about that and I was processing it and I was working towards it for a really long time. Yeah. Like even when you say you studied for the MCAT for 3 weeks and and yeah, obviously did well and, and got in <laughs> to med school. It it has that magic of, okay, three weeks, pretty intensive three weeks, <laughs> I'm sure. But three weeks sounds like, oh, that that's... But probably there's years, decades of work behind those three weeks that made you be able to tackle that. 
For sure. And those three weeks, like I, I tell this to med people thinking about going into med school all the time. I like cried more than I probably have ever cried in my life. I was like, I can't do this. Why did I think I could do this? This isn't going to work out. It was like such a humbling experience. And I'm going to be honest with you. My MCAT scores were not great. (laughs) Your MCATs are part of the piece of your application Mm -hmm. and you put together a whole package Mm -hmm. and they were good enough to get me into med school. But was I like, shouting off the rooftops like killed it no that's not (laughs) that's not really how it went for me but that even that is a lesson unto itself right for uh some perfectionists (laughs) that might think if i can't get 95 percent in the test then why even try (laughs) i wouldn't i wouldn't want to be in that position i'm curious (laughs) when you say like you know you had this feeling you got into med school can you talk about what did that mean to you Yeah, I think it was a lifetime's worth of self-doubt and fear and um, not having the confidence necessary that all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, why, why did I wait so long? Clearly I could do this. And I don't know that I could have if I had applied earlier. I think I, I worked a lifetime or half a lifetime, whatever you want to say. I worked a long time to build myself up and to gain knowledge that made me a good candidate. But all of a sudden I was like, Oh my God, I did it. I did it. After all these years of doubting that I could, mm-hmm. here I am. And it's actually happening. It was the most surreal feeling. And then of course there, I'd be lying if I didn't say, Oh my God, I'm going to get there. And they're going to be like, Ooh, we've made a mistake with this one. <laughs> oh, the brain, the, the brain is right? still there. Enemy. It's such an enemy, that imposter syndrome that mm-hmm. I don't know. Most people who go through some sort of post-secondary have heard of or thought about that imposter syndrome. It's so real, Mm. but, but yeah, for, for the most part, it was just this moment of like, Oh my gosh, this is happening. This is like, I made it. I did it after Mm. all these years of self-doubt after all these years of, I don't know if I have what it takes. I don't know. I'll be able to do it. I got in. Someone saw me and thought, yeah, she can do it. Wow. Of course you can do it. (laughs) That. Yeah, like from the outside, I'm, yeah. where I'm just like thinking, <laughs> what the hell? Kim? And same with your mom. Like, fuck. Yeah, you are going to get in. I know it. <laughs> and it's it's always it's always yourself that is the hardest to overcome. Mm-hmm. Has that changed your, I guess, your view of doubt? Is your awareness of it I think, um... different? I, you know, it's so hard because now I'm working with all these really brilliant people. And I think when I surround myself with them, I'm always sort of like, am I comparing? Am I living up to? Am I working hard enough? Am I good enough? Am I as successful as everyone? Like that feeling for me is always there. And I wish that it wasn't. And I know lots of people that don't have that sort of self-doubt. And so I just have to rely on feedback that I get from preceptors. And, you know, we do so many evaluations, like every day we're sending out sort of evaluations on the different things that we do. And so Mm -hmm. I've learned that I have to just like tune that part of my brain out a little bit and be like, but you're here and you're doing it. And Mm -hmm. nobody has pulled you into the office and said, we need to talk about your performance. We need to talk about your knowledge base. We need to talk about like that hasn't, this never happened for me. Yeah since I started sort of post-secondary. So this doubt Mm -hmm. is not founded. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not a reasonable thing to have. Um, So I just, yeah. For those that like, 
I'm like sh- oversharing right now, I think. <laughs> this is perfect. This is great. That we feel. <laughs> this um, is what we're here for. I think, <laughs> right? I think most people come at this and they seem really confident and confident and everybody is just killing it. And you're looking around and you're like, oh my God, they're so smart. They knew the answer to that. And I was struggling and, oh, I only thought a part of that answer. And, but mm-hmm. everybody has their strengths. Everybody has their knowledge. Everybody brings something different to the table. And Equally, you just have to remember you also bring something to the table and you also mm-hmm. have a good knowledge base. And if you didn't, someone would be talking to you about it. Someone would be mm-hmm. telling you like, okay, we need to figure out a way to make you more successful. So mm-hmm. rely on those that are around you, those preceptors and those mentors that are evaluating you. They're good at it. They've done it for a long time. They've watched a lot of people learn. They've supported a lot of people learn. Trust yeah. them. They know better. I think I would say confidently that when you're in a room surrounded by people that you feel like know more than you, guaranteed there's other people in that room thinking they're missing something also. I think that's absolutely true, Trevor. Yep, that's a really good point. I think that's exactly what it is. Everybody kind of has a little bit of that feeling. Mm -hmm. I imagine med school is that like in a hyper... hyper I don't know hyper competitive environment. Maybe is that true from Grace Anatomy? (laughs) Um, I think it's... It's, it's different. I think like every program is going to be what you make of it. So early on in med school, I found a great support of people that were similar to me, mostly people that were doing med school that also had children. Like they were Mm -hmm. kind of who I sought out to, to work with and Mm -hmm. they were so inspiring and you find those people and it wasn't competitive at all. We took that time to study together, to learn from each other. Everybody had different backgrounds. Everybody brought something different to the table. And we just really all had advantage because of that. Mm-hmm. And I think in nursing, we watch resident groups come through year and year and year and year and year again. And I always, through nursing and my nurse practitioner role, was like, this is a really strong group. And they are all benefiting from each other. And they are not competitive at all. And there were a couple of years where I was like, this is a competitive group. And they mm-hmm. all are probably not as strong as they could be because they're so busy competing that they're not benefiting from each other's skills. They're not teaching each other. They're not working together as a collaborative group. So I went into med school just being like, I'm not going to be competitive. That's not, that's not the Mm -hmm. way I want to do this. I mean, there is a little bit of competition. There is, it's a competitive field. You're trying to get into the discipline you want Mm -hmm. for sure, but that's just not the way I approached it. That's amazing. It's an, amazing lesson in leadership and i have a little bit of an obsession with leadership topics but (laughs) instead of putting people to compete with each other you set up people to lean on each other and work together they do way more amazing things and you've just proven it it's also i guess going into that and going into school already with that idea and already with that mindset of i'm not going to be competing i'm going to be part of this community I'm sure drew people who had the same idea to you. And then it, it helps to build that even if it's, you know, a niche group or it's a bigger group, but you are part of creating that environment yourself. So, yeah, I don't know if I'm naive or or what, but I just didn't get a competitive feeling from the people I went to med school with. Like we had a, a class of 167 ish and mm-hmm. I just felt like everyone was learning from each other. We do all these like small group study periods. Everybody was sharing their information. Like I never, I, I joined several different sort of study groups to help learn the material. And I never really got that competitive feeling. And 
I think it might be different in different programs. I think maybe it was there and I just didn't notice it. But mm -hmm. There's another theme I'm picking up on as you tell your story is that you were so good at um, finding support mm. and like reaching out to a friend and saying, let's do this together. Can you help me? <laughs> we'll help each other. And just like even in med school, finding the group of people who are doing it as as they are also parenting. Yeah. And just leaning on them and having each other. You're, it sounds like you're amazing at doing that. I think there are very few people in this world that are successful completely independently without any support. Like, I don't think mm -hmm. that's the way it happens. I think most of us find a way to have a support system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It, but it takes also like a strength to, to realize that and to reach out for help and support. I, I think there's a certain... Um, I don't know, a certain mindsets that you can get into where it's like, oh, I don't want to bother anybody or, you know, yeah. I, I have to do this myself. And and obviously you, you, you can't like that'll limit what you can do. So it just takes special strength, I think, to admit and reach out I, for help. <laughs> I'm sure my parents at times have been like, um, you should want less support, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's time no. you uh <laughs> no, you're stop using taking your on skills. bigger and bigger things <laughs> and stay where you're at and not use everyone for support. <laughs> no, it's a strength. <laughs> I'm sure they're bragging about you all the time. So. In in the day to day work in a hospital, is it generally encouraged to reach out for help? Like, are you, do you feel comfortable saying, I need help with this? Put, putting in an IV, for example. How many times do you try to put in an IV before you say, I'm going to get some help? Because <laughs> you um, know, have six holes in your arm and <laughs> none of Yeah, I think like um, in the anesthesiology program, one of the reasons I picked Saskatoon is the program here is amazing. I was fortunate enough to get to come and do an elective here and try it out for two weeks while I was in med school. And that's in our year, a lot of people didn't get to do electives because of COVID. And so okay. I was just really, really lucky with the timing of things. And I came here and I was like, the staff here are phenomenal. The residents are phenomenal. Everyone's so nice and so supportive. That's what I want to feel like when I'm doing a five-year residency. That's what I want to have when I'm unsure of what's going on or when I need that help and support. So absolutely in our program, I feel so lucky that it's so easy to reach out for support and help. And in anesthesiology, you know, not all of our work, but a, a good portion of our work is in the operating room. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit different from other disciplines in that we are always working with a staff member one-on-one. -on -one. I have that oh, staff's wow. attention when mm -hmm. I'm in the OR for the entire day. And we obviously prioritize patient care and we, we ensure that we're doing the right things for these patients. We're, there are thousands of ways to give an anesthetic. So we're choosing what anesthetic we're going to give for that individual person for that particular surgery. We're monitoring them the whole time. And while we're doing that, because you're working with the staff one-on-one, -on -one, they have the opportunities to say, well, what would you do if this happened? What would, what would you do? How would you manage this? Let's talk about a, a case scenario when the surgeon does this, this happens. 
what what's your next move? So even though things are going really smoothly in the OR or patients are doing really well, you're always thinking about what's your plan B and what's your plan C and what's your plan D. And mm. that's the one of the things that I love so much about anesthesiology is that you can go in and sort of say like, this is what I'm planning on happening. This is what I plan on using for medications to achieve this goal. This is how I'm going to alter their physiology to be able to accomplish this. But in the back of your head, you're always thinking like, okay, if that doesn't work, then I'm going to do this or this or this. And if that doesn't work, this or this or this. And when that happens, this is how I'm going to manage that really quickly. And so it's really great that we have these staff that we're working one-on-one that are there to support you in that thought process. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like relieved to hear that there's that much support. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Worrying. Yeah, I hope Kim fair. has enough support. <laughs> I'm just going to run into this OR and wing it and see what happens. Yeah, It'll probably be fine. Let's do an epidural today. <laughs> oh my God. Are you still uh, in labor and delivery? Uh, like a focus on labor and delivery? Or are you experiencing everything, I guess? I'm experiencing like within anesthesiology, there's... I think the public is not particularly aware of the role of anesthesiologists. So they think about like, okay, um, my wife is in labor, the anesthesiologist is going to give her an epidural, or we're going to go for a C-section, she might get a spinal anesthetic. Those are two words that people kind of know. Or I'm going for surgery and the anesthesiologist will put me to sleep and wake Mm -hmm. me up. But there's a lot more that anesthesiologists do. Like we train to work in the cardiac surgery. So doing cardiac anesthesiology, we work in neuro suites where we're doing like neuroanesthesia. We work in different areas in the hospital, you know, in places where they're doing CT guided procedures where they need anesthesia or MRIs. We do a lot of perioperative medicine. So when people are coming in for a big surgery and they've got other medical conditions, we'll see them ahead of time and say, okay, let's look at our optimization and how we can make you as healthy as possible and make all of our targets the best as possible before your surgery. And then we're going to come up with an anesthetic plan to manage all of those. You know, people don't come in healthy for surgeries all the time. There's usually other things going on. And that's the role of the anesthesiologist is to try to figure out not only how do I get through the OR period, but how do I get through you from your first diagnosis to recovery and how can I facilitate that. So there's a lot of different things that anesthesiologists do that I'm loving learning about and loving learning how to manage. And obstetrical anesthesia is something that I certainly am passionate about. I have a long Mm -hmm. history in obstetrics and how to work in that population. But I also have interest in a lot of different areas. So I don't know what I'll do when I'm done. I am guilty of being part of the public group that is ignorant of (laughs) how much an anesthesiologist does. Yeah. And people just don't know what that role is. And I think they think of anesthesia as like turning a switch on, like anesthesia on. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the surgery, like anesthesia off. <laughs> and yeah. um, if you watch things like Grey's Anatomy, we certainly don't do much of anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's really a different role that people don't know about. And anesthesiologists train for 13 to 15 years at least before they're able to practice. It is like a highly specialized area of practice. Mm-hmm. When they are calling code blues on the, on the, in the hospital, it's often an anesthesiologist that will come and run that code. Not always, but mm. we're certainly involved. When you go to the ICU, sometimes it's an anesthesiologist that's done a fellowship in critical care, and it's that anesthesiologist that's the intensivist. 
um, oh, that's wow. managing the ICU. And and I don't think people are aware of that. And but I want people to know that we have extensive training. And we are very knowledgeable about so many different things. And that's the care that we provide. Yeah, I can. Very comforting. Glad you clarified that. I have the only like my my respect for anesthesiologist was born out of a (laughs) negative experience with. Oh, no. When Tommy was born, our first son. It was kind of a it was a really tough labor uh, for Laura and it. Became, it got to the point where she was in labor and the anesthesiologist had to come in and give an epidural while she was going into contractions. Yep. And I, they had asked me to sit not facing her back, so I couldn't see. And it was going so poorly, I got up out of my chair and I was like, I have to watch. Because I think it took this anesthesiologist four attempts to get it in and the nurse was like, crying by the time it was over the nurse was in oh tears God. also just watching this happen i don't know and he like the this person came in with i think it was probably the end of a very long shift and laura had been on morphine a couple times and he goes oh she's high as a kite she can't approve anything like she can't say yes she's okay and like that was the start of this experience and i was like yikes <laughs> I want someone different. Get somebody different in here. And they're like, no, this is him. This is the person. So, yeah, after that, I gained a huge respect because our second, the anesthesiologist, was amazing. And I was like, I was joking with this person in the OR room or the OR. And then the same Mm -hmm. thing happened with Noah. I was also telling jokes with that person. And it was just amazing. They were so amazing and they're so smart and you can tell they know what they're doing and they've spent a lot of years practicing. And mm-hmm. like they're right there, probably a foot away from Laura's head. Like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Yeah. You're feeling cold. I feel like what are you feeling? And they're just they're so attentive. So it was redeemed quickly. <laughs> but the first experience was something that it made me have kind of a heightened awareness of anesthesiology. These are the stories and these are the experiences that I think there's, there's this that happens in every profession. Um, Sometimes we're not at our best. Sometimes we're struggling and we are all human, but those are the stories that make me feel really heightened awareness for what the patient is receiving and what the um, family members are perceiving and they're watching you. And Mm -hmm. I think it's okay to say, you know what? I'm struggling. This is a difficult procedure for Mm -hmm. X reason. This is what I'm trying to do to mitigate that or to work with that. Um, Sometimes like I'm really focusing right now. So I I just, I can't focus on what I need to and talk to you, but I'm going to explain everything when I'm done. Yeah. Um, Trying to sort of find ways to put the patients at ease, even when things aren't going as planned or even when Mm. things are challenging as they are, that happens, right? Like these are, these are, um, highly specialized procedures that sometimes Mm. are very challenging, sometimes are very difficult. And so being able to say like, you know what, normally this does go smoother. I am struggling. Here's Mm -hmm. what we're going to do. And I'm going to tell you everything afterwards about what I did. But right now I'm going to focus on what I'm doing can make a huge difference. But we're human. So when you've worked a lot of hours and you're tired and you get called for this and you think it's going to be straightforward and it's not straightforward and now you're feeling flustered, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that that emotion gets the 
best of us for sure. But those are the stories that I try to keep in my brain to try to say like, this patient doesn't know what your shift has been like. This patient doesn't know what you've been dealing with. This patient is coming in for the biggest event of their life. This is something that they will retell this story over and over and over again. And Mm -hmm. how you make them feel is really significant. And I try to hold that really close to my heart. So it's, it's more about the patient than it is about what I'm feeling. Yeah. And I think it's, it's certainly an unfair amount of pressure, even for me to put on that person, because he, they could have been the number one anesthesiologist in Alberta. In Canada and just had a really bad shift. It could be up for 16 hours. Yeah. And it just wasn't going well. Maybe Laura was moving too much. I don't know. But it was just, it was like a, it's hard to separate yourself from it in the moment when someone you love is getting their spine drilled into. (laughs) (laughs) And I certainly have been on the other side where I am doing something and I'm not feeling confident in the person that's providing care. I'm not mm-hmm. feeling confident in their skill set, And it's really hard to then trust them yep. to carry on doing what they're doing when you're like, things aren't going well and you're not communicating and I don't know what's happening. And I can't mm-hmm. just give you blind trust. I can't yep. just like give you the benefit of the doubt that you're doing everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. And this is a known complication or a known struggle that's really, really hard to separate. And, and like I said, there are different kind of professionals in, in every discipline you work at. Some people are much better at communicating. Some people, it's a work in progress. Everybody has their strengths. Everybody has their weaknesses and just trying to work with what you have. But that's, that's where that teaching piece comes in where like as, as staff and preceptors are working with residents, that's their job to say, you didn't instill confidence with that family. You did the procedure perfectly. You did everything I would have done. But mm-hmm. the cherry on top would be to ha- to work on how you're presenting yourself or to find a different way. Like that's what we do as, as preceptors is help people get better at all of the things. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so much pressure. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. When you were in med school, did you know you were going to go into anesthesiology? No. Um I went into med school being like anesthesia. That's where it's at. Mm. And then I started med school and everyone was like, don't come into this program knowing what you want to do. Keep your Mm -hmm. eyes open. Try everything. See what you like. Don't come in with one profession in mind. Just, just keep your, your mind really, really open. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of found like, not everything, but most of the things I did, most of the rotations I did, I was like, oh, I really enjoy this. I could totally do a career for this. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about like, I love obstetrics. I'm very passionate about it. I've worked it for many, many years. That's where I worked as a nurse practitioner primarily. I have a really soft spot in my heart for obstetrics. And so I was like, okay, maybe it'll be obstetrics or anesthesia. And then I kept trying to be like, okay, but keep your mind open, keep your mind open. And then I did this amazing rotation everyone in med school has to do a rural family medicine rotation where you go out to some little community and you learn how to work as like a rural family doctor oh, cool. and I don't know how this happened but I got placed in Lake Louise for my rural family oh, wow. rotation <laughs> and so I got to do a month of living in Banff and working in Lake Louise wow. and I had two of the most amazing preceptors they were absolutely phenomenal. Not only was I in Lake Louise, I was at this clinic where, you know, they could see 
anything and everything. Certainly in Lake Louise, there's lots of people that have falls or accidents and come in with injuries. You're not really close to any main hospital. And at the time I was there, they had the bus for the ice fields that rolled over. They were first responders for that. And I was completely smitten with that role. I was like, okay, I have three good options. Mm -hmm. I can do obstetrics or gynecology. I can do anesthesia or I could do rural family medicine and all of these I would have a great career and I would love it. And it came down, the matching process for getting into residency is quite complicated. And so I don't want to spend time talking all about that process, but it came down to the last minute and I was still like rearranging my rank list of where I wanted to go. I think by that point I knew anesthesia was kind of my top priority, but I still, um, you know, you're, I, I don't think anybody is a hundred percent sure of anything. Right. I was like, but what if I never get to do obstetrics again? What if I never get to be part of that? I'm going to miss it so much. That's something I love doing. So even like coming into the program, you're still like, I love anesthesia. Am I okay that I gave up this huge part of my life? I don't know. We'll try. And so I still go back and forth, but I love what I'm doing. I love, you know, getting to do obstetrical anesthesia and be in that environment is really great. So we'll just see. Can't do it all. So you have to pick something at some point. If anyone can, it's you. Kim, when you talk about like the plan A, plan B, plan C when you're going in, it sounds kind of like a chess game or something, like that type of strategic thinking. Uh, is is that part of what attracted you? Like you, you, You've talked about it, yeah. even from your nursing days. What was it about it? I think it's a perfect mix between being the medicine of like people talk about being a physician and whether you're drawn to the medicine or the surgical side and people typically kind of lean towards one or the other, but I find anesthesia is the perfect balance between both where you're doing so much critical thinking and you have so much knowledge about, um, yes, physiology and pharmacology, but also all of the disease states that are present and all of the surgical things that happen. And so it was this perfect mix of really being so cerebral and relying so much on your cognitive abilities, but then also having a huge procedural component and being able to use those psychomotor skills and it was a balance of both of those that really drew me to the profession see yeah i could see that i wanted to ask um we talked about this briefly with sylvana too do you find it hard to separate yourself from the bad days i imagine you've had some pretty rough things happen throughout your career how hard is it to separate yourself from that and come home and start the next day on the right side of the bed. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. There have been bad days. Mm-hmm. When you work in healthcare, there is traumatic things that happen. There are emotional things that happen. I certainly have not fallen apart, but shed tears with patients as I'm just yeah. devastated for what they are going through. And I think you find ways, you know, it's, it's a little bit difficult with confidentiality. You can't go home and be like, this is what happened in my day. But I think when you have a really supportive family, you can go home and say, I had a bad day and I just need to do the things that make me feel good. Whatever that is, everybody has their different things, Mm -hmm. whether it's exercise or going for a bath or, you know, whatever your self-recovery things are. And then reaching out, you know, I think the hospitals have come a long way when things don't go as anticipated or when we have sort of adverse outcomes 
And I think that's a medical way of speaking about it to try to dissociate a little bit. We do tons of debriefing. And there are um, crisis debriefs that happen with the whole team that was involved in scenarios where you talk about not the medical things that happen. I mean, that certainly is a discussion as well. But how are you emotionally doing? How is everybody coping? How are how are we feeling? What supports do we need? Um, And I think that's really important because you're right. We do have experienced negative things. I think one thing that I personally haven't had to experience yet, but I think we've talked a lot about we are all human. So what happens when you did make a mistake, whether that led to a bad outcome for the patient or not, that's the one thing that I'm really on the top of my mind all the time, because I think that that's hard to recover from. If you made a mistake How do you learn from it and reflect on it and make sure that that doesn't happen again? And I think what nursing really taught me and what I, one of the things that I really value about having a nursing career is this self-reflection process that we go through. And in nursing school, they make you do self-reflections on every rotation that you do and how did you perform and what would you have changed and what happened in that scenario? Cause you know, we're exposed to those negative things early on. And at the time I would roll my eyes and be like, I hate self-reflection. This is, I don't like this. It's not the way I work. It's not. But now that I've, it's become such a huge part of what we just naturally do because you've been trained to do it for so long. I think that's a huge piece that carries you forward. And so I'm always looking at when things went well, I don't just go home and be like, job well done. That's awesome. I go home (laughs) and I go like, okay, what made that go well? What worked? What what could I have tweaked it would have maybe improved it? What are my processes to ensure that I don't make a medication error or that I don't mm-hmm. cause any problems? So those are on the top of my brain all the time. Like when I'm drawing up a medication, I like have a process of looking at the label, putting the label on my syringe of what medication do I want? What medication am I drawing up? What's the dose? What's the dose? And triple checking it. And I have different ways of labeling my syringes with the dose that I've drawn up to make sure I don't. And it's just that qualitative piece that we go through over and over and over again that prevents Mm -hmm. mistakes. Here in our program, and I'm sure every program has this, but we have a really great qualitative improvement program with a phenomenal qualitative improvement lead where we're always looking at those system processes and what kind of things in the system can, can open ourselves up to errors and how do we mitigate that? So I think it's just that process of self-reflection and review and looking at our systems all the time that gets you through when you have those negative things. You can be like, okay, but this is what I did and this is what I did and this was what I did. This was out of my control. This was in my control. Mm-hmm. Here's how I managed it. Would I have done anything differently? I'm going to go back to the books, read about it. Is there anything I could have done differently that I didn't think of? Those are the things that kind of get you through. That was a long-winded answer. It was amazing. And you've opened <laughs> you've opened my eyes and probably all the listeners' eyes to we we put these medical professionals on a pedestal and and think of them as robots that don't make mistakes and they're perfect and they have to have the right answer now otherwise I'm going to be mad. And I think you've opened all of our eyes to the fact that no these are actual humans and humans yeah. also make mistakes and they have to think and they have to make decisions. And there's also like there's often multiple right answers and some wrong answers, and they and it's a human behind that veil making yeah. these decisions. And 
Thank you I don't for being so want, I don't open. want patients to ever feel worried about coming into the hospital. I want you to know we have tons and tons of training and tons of systems in place to prevent that from happening. But you're right. It does happen. We're very fortunate that it does not happen often. But that mm-hmm. is an incredibly rare event. But we are yeah. always looking at our systems and looking at ways that we can improve and looking at ways that we can um, mitigate those events from happening. We mm-hmm. always work as teams. Every critical event that we attend at a hospital, it's never one person making all the decisions. Mm. You know, you see in the movies, there's a team leader and they're like calling the shots, like give Epi, give this, let's intubate, blah, blah, blah. But often when you're in that situation, you know, it's bouncing ideas off of each other's heads and okay, what else can we do? Can you do this while I do this? Let's think about this. Does anyone have any other ideas about what could be going on? Does anyone have any thoughts about what we could be missing? It's always a team event. And yes, there's a leader that's kind of taken the reign of that and taking in all the information, but it's it having multiple people deal with those situations is the way that we try to mitigate making errors and, and missing things. Yeah, the, the, the idea of working with each other and seeking help from those you trust and it comes back right now in a this context where you're mm-hmm. needed to save lives that's right yep yeah it's something like that process could be should be used in other industries i think <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, put that into <laughs> another person's <laughs> office and say hey why don't you guys try this instead of yeah. yelling at each other for an hour <laughs> well it's like it's like this is this is like when you say well, this happens rarely it it is comforting it is it's i guess it's wrong that we take it for granted because it happens rarely and we don't see mm-hmm. all the work that goes behind it to make it so um it's just solid process and such a safe process Mm -hmm. and uh when we've talked about reflection a few times before and have it taking time to reflect but i think usually it's in a i don't know like maybe mental health or self-improvement type of way and the benefits that it can bring there but what you're shedding light on to me is like that even in a professional context the importance of having that reflection to make you better at your job whether that is saving lives or or, or other ways of helping people and, and how that can have an impact on others. Yeah, I think both are equally as important, right? You need to take mm-hmm. care of your mental health. You need to take care of how you're feeling. You need to be aware of how things are impacting you. I think, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't admit that physician burnout is a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. I think it's well known um, that there is such a thing as physician burnout. We are constantly, and I think it comes a little bit from whether it's the public or the patients that are putting us on that pedestal and making sure that we're always a hundred percent at the top of our game, or whether it's our own selves putting us on that pedestal and making sure that we're always at a hundred percent top game. You can't live at that level hmm. all the time without yeah. addressing it at some point. You have mm-hmm. to take that time to say, okay, I'm feeling it right now. So I need to do the things that make me feel better and re-energize. And I, I always have the concept of like filling your bucket. What's filling your bucket and what's taking out of your bucket? You yeah. have to balance those. And I think that's really important. You are such an inspiration. Uh, does the word anesthetist exist? It does exist. So what is the um, difference? Yeah. So it's uh, interesting that you ask. So in other countries, like in the... United States, they have CRNAs. So they're, uh, I can't remember exactly what it stands for, but they're essentially nurse anesthetists. 
that okay. work with anesthesiologists. And when they, when you're in a country where um, there are the different roles, then you use them to delineate, like, are you an anesthetist, which is a different training program, or an anesthesiologist, yeah. meaning that you've gone to med school and done the five-year residency. In Canada, we don't currently, as far as I know, have a nurse anesthetist program. Um, and I think that that is changing potentially in BC, but I don't know the state of that. Oh, cool. I had no idea. I'm glad I asked. Yeah. I think, I think cause traditionally in Canada, we use the words interchangeably to mm -hmm. mean an anesthesiologist and people call yeah. us anesthetists or anesthesiologists. Most people struggle over the word. I often struggle over the word. I struggle um, just saying it. But it's not just me. Right. <laughs> right. No, that's a common problem. But traditionally, the, the, the two words have been used interchangeably, but they do slightly mean different things. Amazing. I have a rapid fire question. <laughs> yes. This is uh, about med school. I'm curious if there's a, like a, a fact about the human body that you learned through your studies that you just, you were like, wow, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Cause that's, that happens to me all the time. You just, Oh gosh. Uh, that is a rapid fire. And I feel like you're putting me on the spot. Cause I feel like there are so many things that I was like, what the body yeah. is just, what? That's not a thing. What? Don't, don't sleep. Yeah. Like, that's I, my reaction. I feel like I have to call Trevor. There's certainly tons of things that I'm like, I had no idea that was a thing. Um, but I can't think of an example right now. That's okay. <laughs> you gave us like a dolphin you. one it's, and that's all I of it. It's all of it is crazy. <laughs> I would say. All, all of it is crazy. I think, um, the thing that I am drawn to probably cause I chose anesthesiology and we're a little bit hyper-focused on the physiology of the body is all the compensation that our body does when things go wrong, all the mm. natural compensation mm. that happens to try to fix the problem that sometimes is actually creating a whole new problem mm. that we now need to address. So all of these like little things that our bodies do to compensate, to try to fix things, I find really fascinating. I, I do have one more question I almost forgot to ask. Uh, this is a question uh, created by Laura that we've asked a few people. Okay. And that question is, if you could say one thing to our listeners, what would that be? I feel like, Laura, that's such a high-pressure question. <laughs> it is a very high-pressure. Um, I don't have anything really brilliant. I think the thing that I try to instill in so many people that I talk with um because of the path that I've taken, because it's not a straightforward, typical path to medicine, I feel like that has opened me up for lots of people to be referred my direction to say, hey, I'm thinking about this. Can you help me? I'm, I want to try this. I'm not really sure how. I want to get into the nurse practitioner program. I want to get into nursing. I want to get into med school. These people are always sort of referred my direction, which I love. And I think in every interaction I've ever had, there's an element of self-doubt mm -hmm. and I want people to know that it's okay to have self-doubt, but not to let that hold you back. That, um, we are capable of so much more than we are aware and we are our own worst critics and we see things in a very different light than how other people see us. And so I just want people to 
to not let that self-doubt hold them back. And if you really want something, you will do the work to make it happen. Oh my God. I got choked up listening to you say that. <laughs> yeah. That was a brilliant response. I don't know what it was. I don't know. It's what I listened to other people's and I was like, Oh, why didn't I say something like that? But I think that's, the, I think is. this is like a common thread that people struggle with. We struggle yeah. with whether it's, am I a good enough parent? I think mm -hmm. universally I hear that everywhere. And I think that's that self doubt coming through mm -hmm. and you are not looking at this through the lens of like, I can look at you and be like, Oh my God, Trevor is the most amazing parent. He has these three beautiful children. I see them all the time. They're amazing. They're killing it. They're doing everything perfectly. Trevor, do you feel like you're an amazing, wonderful, perfect parent 100% of the time? No, not. Probably even not. Close. But I think that's that's that self-doubt coming through and I think mm -hmm. we just need to find ways to get rid of it. Yeah. I how do you what are the ways that you have found to fight that? I think I've had to really listen and trust the people around me that are giving me the feedback mm -hmm. that I, I like, nobody's going to lie to me and be like, wow, you killed that. That was awesome. No, if they're, they're giving me feedback, they're giving me true, honest feedback because everybody wants to help you improve. Mm -hmm. And when people are telling me you did a great job today, you handled that case really well. You did this really well. I think you have to listen to that. You have to trust that their evaluation is on point. When I get asked to do things like a podcast where I never in my life would have thought of myself as an inspiring person, you, you have to trust that and be like, wow, that's really cool that that's how someone saw me. That's, mm -hmm. That means a lot, right? Yeah. Listen to those things that, that are happening around you. It's amazing advice. Definitely. And thank you for saying yes. Yes. Thank you for being <laughs> and, and I would say regardless of how you like your response is, which is amazing, but I think what carries so much more weight is your experience that you can share with people and the fact that the things that you've done in themselves are inspiring. And so thank you, yes, for sharing <laughs> yeah. with us. Oh my gosh. You guys are amazing. I love that you're doing this podcast. I love that you're shedding light on so many truly inspirational people that probably are not aware that they're inspirational people, that it's such a positive podcast that I think we all just benefit from having that attitude and, and kind of looking for those things, looking for those moments, looking for those people. Thank you for saying that. Um, I am so grateful to have you in my life and to have you on the other end of my phone when my life is in chaos. <laughs> And you are amazing. And thank you for thank you for taking two hours out of your day, your very busy life to to chat with us. Oh, my gosh, this is so kind and so wonderful. I'm so flattered that you asked me to do this. It's such an honor. I truly believe that you two are inspiring people. And I hope that you're just going to like interview each other. Oh, thank you. My next call will be to your mom and say you have to be on the show. <laughs> Look forward to that. Okay. We'll let you go. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you, Kim. It's great. Thank you.